0: Welcome to Inside the Writer's Head podcast with Jeffrey Hillard. Hillard is the Library Foundation of Cincinnati and Hamilton County's 2015-2016 Writer in Residence. The Library Foundation's Writer in Residence program promotes writing, literacy, and creativity in our community and furthers the library's mission of connecting people with the world of ideas and information. Here is Jeffrey Hillard.
1: Hi, and welcome to a new podcast. I'm Jeffrey Hillard, uh, the writer in residence at the Public Library of Cincinnati and Hamilton County, and my guest today is nonfiction writer, journalist, essayist, and fiction writer Christine M. Grody. Um, I'm very, very. This is a very special podcast for me because Christine is not only a former student of mine at Mount Saint Joseph, but. Um, I have watched her grow as a, as a writer in middle age, frankly, to become just a, an incredibly prominent nonfiction writer in the memoir genre, particularly in this region. And I, I take, I mean, I'm very proud of, of the effort she's put into her writing. And I've always talked to my students and I've always basically preached to my students. It's about output. It's about production. There, are, there is so much gargantuan talent in this country and even in this city. The talent is oozing off of the bookshelves and, and off of computers. But what can you sh- what, what do you have to show for it? Where are your words? Where are your publications? How often are you writing? Christine has always answered the bell on this. And for her work, she has two of the most special books of memoirs uh, that I've read in recent years, Uh, and they're both fairly focused. One is an account, is a memoir called Dancing in Heaven, which is an account of her relationship with her sister Annie. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. And the second book, the second memoir, is Where Memories Meet, and that's an homage and a a memoir of her father. Of course, it includes uh, much of Christine's life as well as as her mother's, too. Let me read the bio for you. Christine M. Grody earned a bachelor's in chemical engineering from University of Dayton in 1979. After working for three and a half years in product development at Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati, she became a full-time homemaker as she raised three sons and a daughter, in 1999 she returned to school at mount st joseph university earning a bachelor's degree in english in 2007. she lives in cincinnati with her husband mark and their dog arthur and she does have a website and i'll uh remind everybody about this website at the end to it but it's christine m grody.com all one word christine m grody.com and she's got a wonderful blog as well so welcome here, Christine.
2: Thanks for having me, Jeff.
1: Um, I wanted to go back and, and take something out of the bio that really is, is fascinating to me. And I've talked to you about this before. Um, and that is you have this background in chemical engineering. You have a, a huge math and science background. Um, and yet you have a phenomenal writing talent, too. You're very skilled, very gifted. Uh, how, do you, how did you morph or, or, or go from chemical engineering, working at P&G, um, to writing? And writing quite creatively.
2: Well, I actually wrote before I became a chemical engineer. In high school, I had an English teacher who had us do a lot of writing. And he selected one of my stories to read to all of his classes. So I felt pretty happy about that. I went into chemical engineering because I thought it would be a good career choice um, in terms of making money. I liked math and science, and I was kind of led in that direction. Then I quit my job to raise my children. I have four, as Jeff mentioned, and um, that took quite a few years, and I decided I needed to go back to school following that and try to pursue writing because it had always been in the back of my head is something I wanted to do and so I went to the College of Mount St. Joseph or Mount St. Joseph University now and um, took English and written communications courses and that was it was pretty easy transition to be perfectly honest. Um, I left the engineering behind and moved into the writing.
1: So you and and, um, listeners need to know too that you have this extraordinary problem-solving ability that I've seen firsthand, both in things that you've done and through your help in, 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 in editing our publication read for six years, uh, read the breakthrough zine. Christine was not just uh, my right-hand person uh, with respect to editing that magazine, but, but she was the reason I think that it went for six years, six and a half years. Uh, and steadily grew and got the stories it got. So, and you, you problem solve so much of that webzine. Um, let's talk about the books, because um, the, the the books are their own sort of problem solving thing as well. You know, in terms of writing. So when you were writing, when you were writing, Dancing in Heaven, you know, chronicling Annie her life. Um, and The Loss of Vanny, this is a memoir. This is nonfiction, creative nonfiction. What were some things on your mind, both as you started out and as you got into the writing, that you needed to figure out since it was your first memoir?
2: My biggest thing with Dancing in Heaven was how to uh, connect the different, the different pieces. I had a running, uh, almost journal like of Annie's last weeks and days. And I interjected that with my memories of Annie growing up, things my parents had told me about Annie. I wanted the reader to come to know who Annie was in our life and at the same time as we as we walked through her death. And the, that was problematic because it was difficult for me to decide which things matched up, the, the Current day story versus the, the memory, and I tried to figure out what made sense so that the reader would get the points I was trying to make. I, th- I think matching the, the different sections. I move things around a lot.
1: Um, in terms of your moving things around a lot, like what do you move around, for example?
2: I would move a whole section. Uh, if you look at the book, I have uh, almost like a journal entry of a day yeah. in June, and then I have at the end of that a memory of some kind. And typically my memories are what I moved around because I did not do the memories in chronological order. I, when I was in English cla- one of my English classes or one of my writing classes, we studied something called a collage. And it was sort of a um, train of thought, um, just kind of nothing was chronological. It was one thing led to the next, and you read through that. And that's, I think, the way my brain works. My brain, and I think probably for most people, You'll think about something, something else comes to mind and shoots you in a different direction. And I kind of wanted my story about Annie, the memory part, to, to be that. Mm-hmm. Uh, a collage. I wanted the book to be more like a collage.
1: Yeah. We, <clears throat> let me ask you this because, uh, you know, you and I know the book so well. And I'm talking about Dancing in Heaven. You know, this is really uh, a, a gut wrenching book. You know, it, it's so heartfelt. But it's also an emotional book, too, because it deals with the loss of a beloved sister. And I want you to talk a little bit about Annie, you know, and and growing up with Annie. But also, could you you talk a little bit about how you dealt with, as a writer, um, writing this, getting into this really emotional material? And juggling things around. Didn't in other words, did the juggling, did the shifting like I don't like to shift a lot. I like to do drafts, but I get a little nervous myself shifting here and shifting there. I'm most prone if I do anything, I just throw it all away and start all over again. But but shifting makes me you you love to shift. I remember A lot of work on red. You would move things here. You would move things there. And I would be a nerve. Christine, don't move that. You'll blow it up. No, no, it won't blow up. No, no. So I wonder if the constant construction of the book, the structuring of the book, helped you aesthetically as a writer with writing about such sensitive material.
2: I don't know i had written bits and pieces of annie's story over time um i had written a short story about my memories of her for one of the classes i took at the mount and the teacher liked it a lot and she thought memoir was was my uh, genre yeah and so i had those pieces and um I just, I like moving things around. I think <laughs> I can usually see.
1: You're an engineer. That's I can usually see do, something yeah. that would
2: be better. I don't I don't move things just for the sake right, of moving right, it. Right. I usually have a reason that I want to move something to make it better.
1: You are fearless in that, though. No question about that. I don't know. Talk a little bit about Annie.
2: Annie was born a year after me, and she was born with, um, Severe brain damage, which my parents didn't find out until she was about a year old, and she never was able to walk or talk, and we just loved her.
1: Yeah. It was it was lifelong, and my parents
2: um, took care of her. Yeah. Uh, for her fifty-one years.
1: Yeah, and um, the amazing thing about the book too is it it's a kind of diary but it doesn't read like a diary. It reads almost like a novel. Um, and it, um, it's filled with these impeccable photographs too. And let's talk, before we move on to the book about your dad <clears throat> and your mom, Where Memories Meet, this was, this was your very first book. Yes. And you learned a lot about self-publishing. About indie publishing. Mm -hmm. Um, I know we we just do not have time, you know, to cover the intricacies of self-publishing, but this was a great test for you also. How do I put together a book, you know, not only something that's a keepsake for my family, for me, but also something to publish, to hopefully sell, to hopefully get out there. Just in general, Christine, can you talk a little bit about what self-publishing meant to you? What publishing this book for you individually meant, as opposed to maybe trying to get a larger or a small press or a larger publisher to look at it?
2: Well, initially, when I was writing it, I wasn't sure which way I didn't even know about self-publishing to be perfectly honest, until I got the manuscript finished and I started looking at uh, reading online about what the next steps were, getting an agent and then reading a lot of people who were proponents of self-publishing. and i realized that i wanted to keep editorial control of the book because it was so near and dear to me i didn't want someone changing the name for example i didn't want someone changing the content i felt like it was a personal um i wanted to keep control of that and also i didn't want to wait five years or however long it was going to take it takes time you have to have a lot of patience if you go the traditional route you got to be willing to put up with projections and to be honest I'm really grateful I didn't do that because my parents have since died. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they were alive to
1: mm-hmm. see it. Mm-hmm. So you got it out before their death, sure. of course. Yeah. Um, and after you wrote and published Dancing in Heaven, um, you went ahead and you you jumped. Uh, it, it was a little while later, a couple of years later. But you, you fairly quickly, in the book, publishing realm. You jumped pretty quickly into this memoir, into this exploration of your father's life. Yes. I think the seeds for that were planted in Dancing in Heaven, weren't they? And then you had some time go by, and then you you said, you know, I'm going to flesh this out. I'm going to go ahead and write the book.
2: Well, my dad actually instigated the the more memories. We, he, he thought he had an interesting life story, and actually he does have an interesting life story, Uh, And he wanted to tell his story. And so I agreed to interview him, which I did. And um, meanwhile, he had Alzheimer's. So I was also journaling about our Alzheimer's journey as I was interviewing him. And at some point, he was no no longer able to speak, and the interview had to stop. And when I I put this book together, uh, one of the decisions I made was to keep my dad's story in his own voice, Uh, and not embellish it in any way. I think that's problematic for some people reading it who are expecting a more polished version, but I wanted his voice to come through, and I believe that I was successful in achieving that.
1: There's two narrative strands. Mm -hmm. There's the narrative strand of your father, Jerry, in his voice, his point of view, the I. Right. And the second strand is a kind of reverse chronology. Right. Where you start with his death exactly. and work back, reverse. Right. I, I to, may, I how made did the, you come to that notion? I made that decision
2: cool. because I didn't want the book to end at a bad place. Right. The subtitle is Reclaiming My Father After yes. no Alzheimer's. Yes, yeah. <clears throat> and when I was writing it, I thought, you know, there's a place in time where we both were have memories of the same things. Mm-hmm. I don't remember his childhood and he probably didn't remember his ending, but there was a place and time and I kinda wanted to go where those memories met.
1: Yeah. It works great. It's incredible. Um, when did you did you know from the very beginning that you were gonna do this this kind of um, the, these two strands, these two narrative strands? No, um, from the beginning I you was played gonna, around with a few different drafts. Well, two, didn't for you?
2: the beginning I was just gonna write my dad's story. In the eye. Yeah, I was just going to write his story from his This him. point of view. Mm-hmm. That's what I was going to do in the beginning. And then the Alzheimer's thing um, got bigger. And I felt like our experience, I think sharing experiences is one of the reasons I wrote Dancing in Heaven. I think sharing yeah. experience is actually helpful to people. Healing. And, yeah. um, but also to people who are reading it. I, I think it's good to know you're not alone or you think, yes, I someone else understands what I'm going through. Um, if you're reading a book and it resonates with you. And I think all that is, is important to, to our humanity. And um, and that's what I was trying to do with uh, Where Memories Meet.
1: Right, right. I, I wanted to, I'm going to read this this really brief snippet <clears throat> from the chapter February seventeenth, two 2010, or from that section. And there's just a question I wanted to ask you about the writing. Th- this part of the book is where um, Jerry, Christine's dad, has trouble at a funeral, makes a wrong turn. Basically, <clears throat> Christine's mom sort of takes the keys, you know, asking for the keys. You know, it's not, it's not very safe for him to drive much anymore, etc. He got over it pretty soon. That's after mom took the keys. Maybe he forgot that he, was, that he used to drive. I sometimes feel depressed when I visit mom and dad. I think it's because of how fragile their lifestyle seems now. The damaged plaster on the ceiling from last year's leak is not fixed. The raised toilet seat with handles hasn't been installed in the half bath. Neither has Mom's doorbell that she has got that she got at Christmas. Today I arrived there at ten thirty and I plan to stay until dinner time. I read that passage um, because as, as a teacher of writing, I'm always trying to impress on my students to be specific with certain details at certain times for effect. And when I read that little passage, my I, I was just I was just cheering and I was fist pumping because the damaged plaster is there on the ceiling, the raised toilet seat with handles the the raised toilet seat with handles hasn't been installed and in a half. It's a half bath, not a full bath. Little things like that. So Christina, I wanted to ask you, you know, as a writer, and and I'm just fascinated with this too. Do these details like do small details like this, do they enter in really naturally for you or is it something that you go back and you incorporate after a draft, after you see, well, maybe I should add some detail here, flesh this out here?
2: I am a detail person. <coughs> I I notice details, and I notice significant details, and I think that's the important part. You can't just throw a bunch of details into something, but you have to put the ones that matter in there, and um, I, I sometimes I'll go back in and, and Put something more in there so that I feel like the paragraph is making a better point of Mm -hmm. what I'm trying to say but a lot of times the details are are part of it because they're inside me what I saw what I remembered I think the things you notice and you remember are probably the significant details
1: by the same token were there in your drafting of this book or Annie's book did you see details that you just took out because you thought maybe they're too much too superfluous Sure. It's always a finesse thing. It's really, it's really a hard call, but I'm, I'm a great stick. I'm very, I'm very particular with, with the way I write and with the way I teach it because in that passage I read, the forgottenness, the notion of forgottenness, even the theme of forgetting is kind of laid bare and emerges just from those little details
2: mm-hmm. for me. Yeah, you can kind of so, see where they are. In time.
1: Um, you're, you're doing some other writing now. You know, you've transitioned into a new project too. I wanted you to talk a little bit about that and maybe read some too.
2: Well, I'm doing a story about birth mothers who gave up their children or lost their children, surrendered their children to adoption. Um, I've interviewed three women. I'm in the process of interviewing them. And uh, one was a teen pregnancy, uh, she had a boyfriend. And that's, I'm going to read a little bit about her story. The, the other, and she was later reunited with her son, and they have a pretty good relationship now, which is nice. Uh, the other woman was a single parent when she got pregnant and uh, has reunited with her child, but it's not, a real, it's not a real positive relationship. It's not nearly as much as she would like it to be. And the third woman uh, lost her child due to uh, drug addiction. She was an addict, and the courts basically took her child away. Uh, so they were all surrendered, and I think they would all tell you they had no choice wow, pretty much. And, and I want to investigate the mother-child bond because that bond really, as far as the mother is concerned, doesn't appear to ever really break. Um, and I think there's a lot to be said for what our, how our society views that and what our society has done um to some women along the way i think things are better now um but the time period that these women were coming along it it wasn't so good this is uh, i've changed names um this is uh cindy we'll call her cindy's story Mm -hmm. cindy was lying on her back one fine spring day in the grass behind the society of friends meeting house when she got pregnant she was 16 and so was billy Cindy knew enough to realize she was in trouble when her period was two weeks late. She told Billy. He drove her to a drug store in a different neighborhood where they wouldn't be recognized. She bought the pregnancy test and took it in a McDonald's bathroom while Billy waited. We'll get married, Billy said. We'll run away and be married. We can't just run away, Cindy said. How will we get money to pay rent and buy food? We won't have high school diplomas. What kind of job could we get? Their prospects were limited. Days and then weeks passed while Billy and Cindy kept this heavy secret. Cindy would ask Billy, What are we going to do? Billy would say, Well, we're going to get married. And Cindy believed he meant it. When the fifth month came and there was no indication of a job or preparations on his part, it began to sink in that she had to figure out what she was going to do. She finally realized that if there was going to be a practical solution to their dilemma, Hmm. it would have to come from her. All Billy had was dreams. Cindy did research. She called the emergency hotline 241-CARE to get information. She went to Planned Parenthood for prenatal care. They educated her about her options, including abortion. If she had an abortion, no one would ever have to know. But Cindy had a strong maternal instinct that prevented any consideration of abortion, other than the passing thought that it would make things easier. She wanted to do the right thing for the baby. She did her best to eat right and take care of herself. As the baby continued to grow, So did Cindy's waistline. She unbuttoned the top of her skirt, and while wearing her uniform knit shirt with a sweater on the outside, she was able to hide her pregnancy for a while, but she knew that wasn't going to be the case forever. Before telling their parents, Cindy wanted to have her own decision made about what to do. She knew she and Billy couldn't afford to take care of a baby. She knew they both needed to finish high school. They both hoped to go to college. She also knew their parents would think they were too young to get married and raise a child. She was afraid her parents, or Billy's, might pressure her to have an abortion. She was not willing to consider that, so they waited as long as they could. Realizing there was really no other choice for her, Cindy began to make an adoption plan. She found the Our Lady of Eternal Hope Infant and Maternity Home, a fancy name for a home for unwed mothers. Mm -hmm. It was going to be expensive for the three-month stay needed, including the hospital expenses when she had the baby. She and Billy would have to get help with the money from their parents. She hoped his parents would be willing to pay half. Only the details needed to be worked out when she and Billy told their parents about the pregnancy. Cindy's parents were mortified and shocked to find her pregnant. They were not understanding or sympathetic. Or, if they were, Cindy didn't know it. (coughs) Where did we go wrong? What have we done to you that you felt it necessary to do this, they asked. What will people think? Cindy couldn't understand why her parents thought some of the things they did. Of course you can't keep the baby, they said. How would you support yourself? Although Cindy's parents were concerned for her reputation, that was the furthest thing from her mind at the time. Her concern was only for her baby. She felt protective of him from the moment she knew he existed. How could she care for him at the age of 16 with no education, no job, and no financial support? She goes on and has the baby. she goes to the to the maternity home and and she has the baby. and after she has the baby, uh, she she went home. She went back to the maternity home for a couple days and then she went back to her parents' house <clears throat> and about ten days after her baby was born, he was released from the hospital and was placed in the nursery at our lady's home. During this time period, Cindy was allowed to go to Our Lady's home to hold him, although the nuns advised against it. Maybe they were afraid she wouldn't let him go. She insisted on going. Her mom drove her to Our Lady's. They did not talk about what they were about to do. Cindy carried the camera her parents had given her for Christmas. She and her mom were led into a small visiting room like the one where they had recently celebrated Christmas. The sister in charge of the nursery returned, pushing a bassinet containing a blanket-wrapped bundle. Cindy started crying the moment her baby was in the room. "'Do you want to hold him?' sister asked. "'Cindy nodded. "'Please sit down and I'll give him to you.' "'She handed Cindy the baby and said, "'I'll be back for him in a few minutes.' "'Cindy had never held a newborn baby before. "'He was soft and sweet and so fragile. "'She held him close in one arm and unwrapped the blanket. "'She counted everything. "'She counted the tiny, fragile fingers on both hands, "'the stubby little toes on each foot. "'She stroked the skinny legs and rubbed the soft, down-covered head.' She felt like a criminal looking at her own baby because she didn't know if she was allowed to unwrap him and touch him. She felt like she had no rights where the baby was concerned. She had given up her right to be his mother. <clears throat> From all her research, Cindy knew adopted babies were allowed access to their birth information at the age of 18, 18 long years. Mm. She trusted the universe to return him to her at some date in the future. Cindy looked into her baby's eyes to imprint him in her memory. She held him close and whispered in his ear, i love you you must look for me when you grow up her mother refused to take a picture of cindy holding her baby she insisted that cindy wait until the baby was back in the bassinet to take the photos that way if someone sees the pictures it will just look like pictures of a random baby not your child she said cindy felt the secrecy was ridiculous she did not allow her mom to hold him cindy took a whole roll of pictures of him in the bassinet before the nun took him away then she left our ladies with nothing to hold on to except an undeveloped roll of film, and the hope that her son might look for her someday.
1: That's extraordinary. Did anything happen from that point? Did Did she ever get reunited? Or
2: yes, she did. She did get reunited much <clears throat> much later.
1: Yeah, that's that's great writing too. What do you? What's your hope for the project?
2: Right now, I'm hoping to finish the project. Yeah. <laughs> Right now, I'm any
1: projected uh, deadline or no,
2: I don't, I don't really. It's it's been a challenge for me to. Um,
1: You're and, having to record them, aren't you?
2: Yeah, to get the time with these women, yeah. they have busy lives, and, and then there's
1: transcription involved, I, right?
2: Right, and um, and I'm really like the other two books. I'm really not sure right now, uh, what kind of form it's going to take. You know, do I tell each yeah. person's story all the way through? Do I do it in sections of their life up until the, the surrender of the baby and then you know different sec- I just don't know yet do I add other factual information into the story I, I have a lot of questions yet I, I'm still in an early stage with this
1: You're problem solving it Okay <laughs> yeah. Well thanks for being my guest today
2: Yeah thanks I appreciate for that me, Jeff.
1: so much uh, I've been speaking with Christine M Grody yeah. and her two books are Dancing in Heaven a sister's memoir and where memories meet Reclaiming My Father After Alzheimer's. And um, this, is a, this is summer 2016 in a season of travel. And uh, before we quit today, I wanted to point out a brand new book of travel essays and reportage that's come out. Uh, it's a book published by my very close friend, longtime dear friend, Bob Shikochis. It's his first uh, book of collected journalism, uh, travel journalism, that spans almost 30 years. It's the best travel book that's probably come out in the last number of years, 10 years. Um, There are extraordinary um, essays in journalism, many of which uh, appeared in Harper's Magazine, Outside Magazine, GQ, and other magazines. Um, Kingdoms of the Air by Bob Shacochis, Pulitzer Prize finalist. Join us again in July when we have fiction writer Tom Atkinson in the studio. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Inside the Writer's Head podcast with Jeffrey Hillard, the Library Foundation of Cincinnati and Hamilton County's 2015-2016 Writer in Residence. This podcast was recorded in the library's makerspace. Use the makerspace yourself at the main library or at the Reading and St. Bernard Branch Libraries. The podcast was mixed by Adam Baker. Special thanks to Kimber L. Fender, Sandy Bullock, Missy Dieters, Kate Lawrence, and Chris Rice, and to the Library Foundation for funding the Writer-in-Residence program. Also, thanks to the band Amphibians for providing the song Sharkbait for this podcast. Learn more about the Writer-in-Residence and related events on our website, cincinnatilibrary.org. There, you can also read our Inside the Writer's Head blog and comment about this podcast. Be sure to join us again next month for another Inside the Writer's Head podcast.